I still think this is one of the best strategies that, that we've ever had. This is like, I've, I've held that. Like that to me is- This just, campaign. Yeah, totally. Like I felt like this was the vindication of the stuff that I've been talking with people about. Hundreds of young people marched down Queen Street, protesting against low pay. To kick it off, we had the world's first Starbucks strike. The owners of KFC, Pizza Hut and Starbucks buckled under union pressure and signed a new deal. The first Starbucks worker to go on strike sort of came out of Starbucks and a more threw his Starbucks apron down and said, let's strike. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Blueprints, a new podcast about political strategies for one of 200. This first series is going to specifically be about campaigns and will be focusing mostly on the history of Aotearoa New Zealand as told via the strategies that changed it. We'll be trying to uncover not just what happened, but most importantly how it happened, because we want the lessons from those who've gone before us to be easily available to everyone who's working toward a better society. For today's first episode, we're just going to turn the microphone on to Simon who's also co-producing the podcast. We're going to talk about the Super Size My Pay campaign that he ran back in 2005. The campaign was run by Simon and a group of radical volunteers for Unite the Union. Their aim was to unionise fast food workers in New Zealand and in the process, force the issues of low pay and insecure work into the broader political conversation. They made one-on-one conversations with workers the key part of their organising model and used a media-driven strategy to capitalise on high-profile public support from people like journalists John Campbell and Green MP Sue Bradford. After less than a year of organising, they'd won the first union contract in the fast food industry for 20 years, forcing restaurant brands who own companies like KFC, Pizza Hut and Starbucks to phase out youth rates, increase the minimum wage and provide more stable work hours. Simon started by telling us how he got into the campaign. I think I had to tell a story about how I got to you, Unite, because, you know, I consciously went there to do this campaign. Oh, that, wow. Yeah, it was like totally planned. So I'd spent a, a number of years doing social justice campaigning around peace, anti-war, anti-globalization, and GE-free, animal rights, a bunch of things. And I sort of, I, I sort of felt like a lot of the, a lot of the, the, I don't want to call them campaigns because I don't feel like they were campaigns, but a lot of the actions I was involved in were quite tactical. And, you know, doing a march, it wasn't, you know, you, you're doing a march because that's the thing that you do. It wasn't a part of a broader plan. And if there was a plan, I certainly didn't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, apart from animal rights, which actually did have tactics that were part of a campaign and they were winning things that they were proactively doing, whereas like anti-war, globalization, G-free was all quite reactive stuff. Mm. And I, I took some of the stuff that I learned from animal rights to environmental campaigns and I don't know it just there was a lot of people who wanted to act but I didn't feel it was particularly strategic and at the time I had this sort of perception that there were two different types of campaigns it was self-based campaigns which are you know you're campaigning for something that directly affects you and then um, bigger than self campaigns which are issues that are bigger than you that you care about and and I felt that the you know while certainly there are some people who were campaigning around GE Free because they were worried about their kids, a lot of it was bigger than self. You know, it wasn't because it was going to directly affect people. And I had this conception of need and want around campaigns too, that, you know, if you're doing self-based campaigning, you do it because you need to, because it's something that you directly benefit from. So, you've, you know, when it comes to prioritising your time and saying, do I want to go do campaigning or do I want to go look after my kids or do my job, you know, if it's, if it's want based campaigning then it might not be that high on your list or yeah but if it's need based and and so I sort of thought I reckon if I applied some of these ideas which had been successful but weren't necessarily being picked up in a self-based campaign I reckon it could totally work and and I'd, I was talking to people who were like sort of movement leaders and stuff and just these ideas weren't connecting with them so it's like stuff this I'm just going to go and do it so I went to find some unions because obviously you know negotiating for pay is something that's going to benefit you personally and obviously as a anarcho-syndicalist slash socialist the idea is that if you campaign around needs-based stuff or something that benefits you personally by fighting for that pay rise collectively with people we see the world in a different way and we you know 
build that natural solidarity and it politicizes you around other issues and you know if you can't fight at work where you're being oppressed how are you going to fight somewhere else simon approached a few unions to try and get involved in their campaigning but they all said that they didn't take volunteers so he kept searching and eventually came across unite the union it had recently been relaunched by matt mccartan who'd been a leader of the alliance party and mike treen who simon had met in the anti-globalization movement Unite was trying to organise workers in a more modern, dynamic way than most other unions at the time. Simon literally knocked on their door and they invited them in. And after a little bit of time, got to know them, they said that they wanted to give fast food a go. And I said, look, I think I can, I think I could do that. And um, I think we can get better outcomes than we did before. And we just, we went out and we were relatively successful. Well, when I say relatively, it was the largest growth I think any union had had for a large period of time. I'm not sure how different it was like in how we were approaching stuff, but certainly the conversations we were having were different. So previously it was activists going in and talking up political things. There wasn't like a conscious plan on how, like a tactical thinking through the one-on-one conversation, but obviously had a strategic idea of what I, th- I wanted to do. We just kept it really, really simple and focused on the basic things we wanted to do around a collective agreement. And after a bit of time of doing this and recruiting people, uh, I realised w- there wasn't a form strategy that the union had around this, and so I sat down and just sort of worked out three demands, which was $12 minimum wage, in youth rates, and secure hours. Part of the reason why we wanted to do secure hours is because they, they just wasn't, <laughs> wasn't secure at all. The workforce at these places was largely young and diverse. However, it wasn't all students. There were older women, most commonly from the Pacific Islands, migrants from all over, as well as many Maori. The emphasis, though, was on organising the younger workers since it was less risky for them to take political action. This was a strategic decision that Simon will explain in more detail later on. I think it's worth saying that a lot of unions thought we were wasting our time and that it was never going to happen Well, because young people didn't want to join unions. And unions had been talking about getting young people to join and there were all sorts of programs and stuff but um we people there. told you that to your yeah, face. yeah yeah totally like, waste, wasting your time part of it could be because some unions thought united were up it was an upstart union part of it could be because united tried stuff that hadn't worked but you know anyone who knows um when you're trying to do do something stuff doesn't always work but you know it's what's behind those projects that matters like you know once you've done the project of the campaign you sit back and think and learn like we've we've talked about and then you learn those lessons and you move on so you know, so whilst we sort of came in and did things differently, certainly, you know, the the union had learnt from the mistakes of, you know, sitting in activists and socialists talking about random shit that wasn't focused on a concrete outcome. In the mid-2000s, trade unions were still operating in a hostile environment created by the reforms of the 1980s and 1990s. Whereas in most of the rest of the world, it was right-wing governments like those of Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US who ushered in neoliberalism, Incredibly, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, it was the Labour government that was responsible for the first wave of devastating reforms. Prime Minister David Lange, led by his finance minister Roger Douglas, ripped apart the economy and opened it up to global capitalism. And central to making that happen was to gut trade union power, making it harder for them to organise. There is a short documentary about the Super Size My Pay campaign on YouTube. It was made for the union and so focuses too much on its leaders rather than Simon and the volunteers who actually ran the thing. Nevertheless, here's a clip of them describing the effects of these neoliberal reforms and the environment the campaign was operating in. The background music is a little bit over the top, but maybe it just adds to the drama of it all. Things really started to get bad for workers in New Zealand from 1984 onwards with the election of the Longy Labour government. Within those few years, we saw dramatic changes. Everything became privatised, everything became user pays. The problem was the unions didn't fight it here. It took people by surprise because it came from a Labour government. Major attack on the trade union movement. But right through the 90s just drove hard with those policies. And the whole purpose, of course, is actually to smash the unions. At the time, my understanding of strategy was how you get from where you are to where you want to go. You know, so where are we, where do we want to be, and how do we get there? Mm. And, and part of saying where are we isn't just talking about the broader objective conditions you know, outside your organisation, but it's also what are the conditions inside your organisation, like what resources have you got internally, what's your capacity, you know, so we were lucky, we had, you know, we had a number of people working for free who could because of our welfare system, you know, I think I must have been on the dole, 
I'm sure. Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I must have been. You know, it's relatively easy for a young white man on the dole to mm. get around the rolls for whatever it was meant to be uh, meant to be doing. I mean, I was looking for work, but I mean, I was also working, putting a lot of time into this. But we, you know, we had people who had passion and time to do stuff. We had a willingness to try whatever. You know, the, the union let us just let loose. So, is you guys running the thing? Yeah, yeah. And you went to the staff for like advice and help and. No, no, no we just made it up. I don't think anyone told us anything. <laughs> and I mean, I think Matt realised pretty soon that we we got onto a a much better approach that was being more successful. I mean, organising in a large. I mean, this is talking about assumptions. I wanted to work for a union with a large non-unionised workforce, and a small number of employers, where the work that you did was going to have a much bigger impact than. You know, just organising one cafe. You know, mm. you know, you could put a lot of work into organising one cafe. Anyone could leave. You know, and so the turnover might be the same at McDonald's or restaurant brands, but it's a large enough organisation that the time and effort you put in is going to make a difference. Despite the drastic reforms to trade unions, Aotearoa New Zealand still had some of the best union access rights in the world, meaning Simon and the team could legally walk into any restaurant and speak directly with the workers. Utilising this formed a key part of their organising strategy. They went into Starbucks, McDonald's, Pizza Hut and KFC restaurants across the city, had one-on-one conversations with the staff and signed up a couple of thousand people in just a few months. The bigger picture was use Auckland as a lever for the whole country. Use restaurant brands as a lever for the rest of the sector. So patent Mm -hmm. bargain if we can. So restaurant brands was publicly listed and they had Starbucks, KFC and Pizza Hut and we thought that they would be more vulnerable in terms of their brand. Essentially... The idea was because fast food hadn't been unionised for a while and because this was sort of the first time in a while that large numbers of young people had joined a union, we could use that to start a public narrative through the media to generate pressure on these companies that are susceptible to pressure around their brand. Hmm. And the way that we would continue to get that media was to have a series of escalating strikes and other protest action to keep it keep the pressure and the story going in in the media but knowing that we you know these are young people where there's never been a union before and whilst we had 2,000 members that didn't mean everyone wanted to go and strike we'd have to devise a way to present those strikes in a way that the they would continue to be fresh and the media would want to stay on board but also the, the the other key thing was is that we would use this dispute as a platform to talk about the bigger political issue around the minimum wage and youth rates. So essentially an industrial strategy as a lever for a political strategy. That was the key driver for me doing this, is that if you want to have political change on a high level, you need to have a concrete target on the ground. So, you know, a lot of the things that I was experiencing with this tactical sort of activism was like anti-war stuff is like you're targeting the government. If the government is your decision maker and you don't have the ability to get the decision maker to give you what you want, then you're essentially just, it's just symbolic action. So the thing that I learned from animal rights is that we targeted businesses that we knew we had, lever- we had leverage over even with three or four activists. Mm. You know, so rather than targeting the government, mm. What we did is we targeted the business. But what got frustrated me with animal rights is that at that time we were only targeting the businesses. We didn't have the political message. Mm. And so when I did the anti-war stuff and the GE free stuff, it was a complete flip. Flip. They were focusing on the political stuff without having anything on the ground. And the key thing with any campaign is if you don't achieve measurable gains, you won't be able to motivate people to stay involved in the campaign. And so with unions... Okay, you, you could do negotiations for, say, 5%, and you can measure it. You know it's 5%. Your pay has gone up. There's a measurable thing. You might not have achieved 10%, but you know you've achieved something. With a lot of political campaigning, it's symbolic. I, there was just no way to measure what yeah. we were doing, and I think that's a problem. And so often the measurement became how many people turned up to the march rather than how much power did the march give us within a broader strategy to achieve the outcome we wanted. Yeah. And so I consciously was like, let's combine the industrial with the political, you know, let's combine the self-based campaigning with the bigger than self-campaigning. So even if we didn't achieve the bigger picture stuff, we still had measurable wins on the ground. In this case, though, we got both. So once their strategy was formed and they'd assessed the conditions that they were working in, how did they map out the campaign? Well, 
Simon is going to describe the structure of a campaign as conceptualized by Marshall Gans. There'll be a bit more on him later on, but this is the structure of each episode. I'll let Simon introduce it. When I do campaign planning, I have stages. So you do your preparation or, or what Gans calls it the foundation period where you're doing all the work before you go live. Mm. And then there's the kickoff, which is your first action. And so, you know, to kick it off, we had the world's first Starbucks strike. Of all the places we could strike, which one is going to fit that narrative best? And Starbucks never having a strike before, all young workers, you know, and we would bring them to one central city, Starbucks, that was easily accessible by the media, and then we'd, we'd kick it off. And now, now the problem is, of course, you know, these work sites are tiny. You know, mm. like a Starbucks is like three or four people working there. Even even a Pizza Hut has small numbers of people working there. KFCs, you know, might have 11 or 12 people. So calling a strike is not going to look that fancy <laughs> in the media. So so what we needed to do was bring workers from a bunch of um, Starbucks to one place to make it look like we had a lot more people on strike than we actually did in that particular store. You know, some people came on strike wearing their outfits, but they weren't actually working. So it wasn't really a strike. But as far as the narrative and the, the media went, that, that was by the by and what what we did was we also wanted to make sure we had current affairs on board you know we did an exclusive story with john campbell who was the sort of number one current affairs you know at the time and we gave him an exclusive sort of participation in that and he came on the bus and you know the first the first starbucks worker to go on strike sort of came out of starbucks and a more threw his starbucks apron down and said let's strike and that was like that wow. was this yeah it was amazing it was so good yeah and then that kicked it off and so that was that's the kickoff, you know. So when I said before, you know, the Starbucks strike, the first Starbucks strike in the world was the kickoff of the story. And so it started the ball rolling. But, to, you know, a campaign's not a one-off media event. You've got to keep having things happening. So so we had a series of strikes in different places that kept that story going. As I mentioned earlier, the YouTube doco doesn't really follow Simon Pitapi and the other volunteers, but there are some interesting scenes of them at work. Here's a clip of a sprightly and youthful 25-year-old Simon explaining this tactic to a group of workers outside their KFC branch. What we want to do is we want to have, um, next week we're going to have a Pizza Hut strike, but we want to have, we want to use all these other people's strikes to bring you guys out so that you guys can go through the motions of doing a strike. Because strikes are legal, right? You can't get in trouble for it. Just, just remember, even if there's only five of you and you go on strike, you can have a really big effect if you do it at the right time when no one knows. So even if you don't have 100 people supporting you, if it's at the right time, it'll still have an effect. How do you convince someone to go on strike? Because to me it seems like it's a hell of a risk for someone. And you're saying, hey, I'm pretty confident this is going to get you a heaps better material conditions, but it's pretty risky. Probably wouldn't use the word heaps better material conditions. <laughs> <laughs> we're going for a pay rise. No, we have got to remember, like, people were on shit pay. Okay. Like, you know, because one of the things we're focusing on was youth rates. We, part of the reason why I wanted to work in fast food is because people working in fast food, not all of them relied on their income to pay their bills. You know, a lot of the students and school students, it was pocket money. Mm. Now, now, that's not, I mean, a lot of people think that's all it is in, in fast food, which is not true. But we knew it would be easier to strike with young people who weren't sort of connected materially. But we also knew that, you know, by getting groups of workers together, it would make it easier to build the confidence for those who actually were financially reliant on it. But, you know, like I said before, there was only small numbers of people that went on strike, so it wasn't a big deal. And some of these strikes were, like, for five, 15 minutes, you know. You know oh, if, right. if the goal is to get a strike, you know, in fast food, and that's, a, like, a brand-new, shiny thing, well, it doesn't matter if it's five, ten minutes or, or a week, you know, it doesn't matter. It's still a strike, right? I mean, we're just trying to get the story, and we're trying to keep the, you know, art of war. When you're weak, <laughs> present strength. When you're strong, present weakness. So... Ne never set yourself up for an action that's going to make you look weak because especially in, when media is a key part of your strategy because if it's not you know if there are enough people it's not newsworthy by chance um sue bradford had a youth rates bill when she was a green mp going through at exactly the same time and so basically that that became an opportunity to continue the story so i'd call that now a point of engagement you know so there's a <laughs> points of engagement are times along your campaign that are newsworthy or significant that people want to know what's happening and when you have a bill going through parliament at the same time as industrial action around the same issue 
the journalists are going to look forward and say, hey, there's, there, there are these dates and steps within the process of bringing this bill forward that are now more significant than they otherwise would be because there's this campaign going on. As every campaign progresses, it's important to have a sense of where the momentum is. Because if you're losing momentum and you don't know it, your power could be ebbing away. But with workers taking risks by coming out on strike, how do the campaign maintain the momentum? And how do they keep people engaged during the times of lower excitement? There was multiple audiences. So there was the volunteer staff who, you know, the, the organisers. Then there were the sort of key activists who were part of ongoing action. And then there was the broader membership. And the broader membership was pretty forgiving of anything. I think that, you know, even if we hadn't been doing strikes, I, you know, in fact, I think a lot of those members probably didn't even notice. You know what I mean? Like, like essentially the broader membership was providing the funding for us to pay for supporting those activists who were doing stuff. But you got to remember, like, the organisers were themselves unpaid mm. activists, so there was quite a lot of crossover. And whilst we did have some delegates on the floor sort of acting at that level, it was largely driven by organising staff. So I, I think, you know, there was a series of things that were going on. People trusted the union. They believed in what we were doing. But it was a very small group of people that we really needed to keep on board. And there was enough action for, the, for that to happen. I think in this case, it was really simple. Like, youth race was just bullshit. I mean, you didn't have to convince someone to join the union when you said, you're 15, you're working next to, next to someone who's 21, that you're doing exactly the same job, but you're being paid $4 an hour difference. I mean... It's, it's pretty easy and so because the, the thing is that like you've got to find issues that are deeply and widely felt by people but you've also got ones that will motivate people to act and so we probably had more people acting around youth rates than we did around the minimum wage but obviously talking about the minimum wage was an important thing you know this, the adult minimum wage because you know there's a lot of people working there who were over 18 but you know a lot of the momentum was driven by people who were earning less than an adult minimum wage which is pretty cool. And that certainly was a narrative that we're talking about. But I mean, we also talked about, you know, there were adults who relied on the income. You know, we had members with six kids. You know, the mum was working KFC and working taxis at the same time, you know. So it wasn't just about them. But the fact is, is that when you've got a campaign, you've got to have people acting. And it was easier for us to mobilise with our skills and knowledge or whatever at the time to get Mm. the younger people to act. Marshall Guns who Simon mentioned earlier, is a legendary community organiser and strategist from the USA. He was active in the civil rights movement, and he helped to create Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, which functioned with a decentralised organising model that scaled rapidly. The campaign structure that Simon uses is how we'll be structuring each episode in this series. So after their foundation period of one-on-one conversations with workers and the creation of their demands, they moved to the kickoff which was the Starbucks strike. Campaigns then need a series of peaks, which build momentum and grows your membership or your power. These were the lightning strikes, which were attracting significant media attention and causing restaurant brands reputational damage. Every campaign then should reach a climax or a mountaintop peak, which is the point at which you have the most leverage over the decision maker you're trying to influence. This is the moment when a campaign is usually won or lost, So as the campaign proceeded from peak to peak and the strikes were building and building, they faced two problems. How to judge when they were at their maximum point of leverage over restaurant brands and how to maintain that foundational work of organising in between each exciting peak. So we got this thing called the Big Day Out in New Zealand, or we used to, which was a music gig. And I felt that our, our leverage was getting a bit flat in the media. So I had this idea that we would do a big payout, which was a concert to bring people together and the idea was that um, the big day out, which was about to happen, would sue us for using their name and their logos. And basically, I messed with their logo and recreated it, but with McDonald's and Burger King and restaurant brands' logos and stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, so we put out the press release, and then they say, um, we're going to sue you for um, using our branding. And of course, that's exactly what we want, because it made it into a story, and we got more coverage. We didn't get the number of people that we expected to come, but to be honest, I'd never done a concert before, and like <laughs> we had like an old country singer and like heavy hard. I mean, it was just crazy. But um, there was this really great moment though. Like we're in the middle of this, middle of the mosh pit, and I say, I said, cut the music, cut the music, got to stop the music, and everyone's like moshing out, and I'm like, what? What's going on? I said, I've got a phone call. I've got a phone call, and so everyone goes quiet, and I say. You know, I start talking in front of the crowd, and I, and I say, hey, "I've got some people on the on, on the phone, and it's the restaurant brands call center, and they want to come on strike too." What? And then everyone goes, Wah! and um, yeah, and then 
they came down and joined the strike, but it was all set up. Like that was all totally. Oh, <laughs> you knew they were going to. Yeah, yeah, totally. It was all the plan, <laughs> but but we wanted to, we wanted to make it a thing. But yeah, so as far as that concert goes, it was a bit crazy. But um, but like as a tech, it was good because we got media attention. Mm. Had a, you know, there's some great photos in the media. Yeah, we got the call center out. And see, this was the key thing: is that I felt that the symbolic actions we were doing that were getting media and damaging the brand, the the employer was getting used to it. Mm. There was no financial damage done on the ground from people not working because it wasn't really disrupting them. And so I'd sat down, back and done some analysis and said, where's the bottleneck in restaurant brands? And it's really simple. It's the call center because the call center has small number of people, high number of phone calls. If we take them out, it's going to have a much bigger ripple effect. And so... We took them out, and they, they this group of workers were awesome, and they just we constantly kept on going on strike, and they wanted to keep escalating. I've been uh, blocked from having a legal entry into the restaurant brand's call centre, where we were going to be calling a strike at six o'clock, uh, but the company has obstructed me from having my legal right of entry. A few minutes ago, we went up there and spoke to them about Simon and said that he might be coming up, and they said that that would be trespass and letting him onto the premises would be illegal. And so I interpreted that as a threat towards the union delegates as well as towards Simon. I felt that we had more leverage than the union realised and the leverage was in the call centre and that I actually agreed with Mike and others. I felt that, you know, like I said before, I felt some of the organisers were focusing too much on the, the action stuff. We weren't doing the background stuff. You know, I felt like we were using, we'd used up all the goodwill we'd built with the one-on-one conversations. And so I actually agreed around that, but I felt that the call centre was where we really had the leverage. The workers there totally wanted to go on strike. I, because you've got to remember that the union was, we were encouraging people to strike all the time where it wasn't necessarily what members were asking for. Like it was, Members, what do you mean? Like the union members weren't necessarily saying, hey, I'm on Queen Street and I want to go on strike. Oh. We'd go and talk to them and say, hey, do you guys want to go on strike? And maybe you might have two or three members that wanted to go on strike. And then we'd bring some other people and I think the numbers were getting lower and it was harder to sort of show that it was more than it was. And I think mm. it's because I felt some of the organisers were pushing it a bit too far. And so we're doing actions that didn't necessarily have the numbers. But, but you know, but it, and I, it was a little bit activist scene And mm. got to remember, I specifically went here because I wanted to get away from mm. activist scene stuff. I wanted it to be measured. You know, I wanted it to, to be member-led. But the call centre really was member-led. But I totally understand the position that, that Mike and Matt were in. There was indications from the employer that they wanted to do a deal and that bloody Simon's going and <laughs> fucking it up by organising more strikes at the call centre. And so they came up and tried to stop the strikes because they thought I was getting people to do strikes like it was being done on the floor, but that's not how I work. And and the members were doing it, and they were just like, who are these people coming to tell mm. us not to strike? This is the union telling us not to strike, and that pissed me off. Mm. And, and I felt like I was being undermined. But the thing is, you know, being the union boss and having more experience and having all these young people and, and having a deal on the table and them worrying that we'd gone beyond the peak, you know, there is actually pressure to do a deal and mm. get the best that you can before you move on somewhere else. You know, I totally understand where they're coming from. And I understood at the time, but it really pissed me off and I, I didn't agree with them. And I think I was vindicated on that because they got the huge pay rise. But yeah, so the deal was done and I probably still don't agree now, but you know, the outcome... <laughs> 15 years later. Yeah, yeah but, the, but the outcome was good, right? We, like, we got the first collective agreement in the sector for 20 years. As the momentum of the campaign built, Simon contacted Radical Youth, a group of high school students who had also been campaigning to abolish youth rates. At the next union strike... A thousand school students came out on strike from their high school to support them. They flooded Queen Street and picketed with striking workers outside the restaurants. Oh, I know they've done it before. Yeah. They did in the 70s. Mike Train, who you know was at the union, did a school strike around haircuts. I think it was haircuts <laughs> back in the 70s, you know, because they wanted to have their hair long and boys weren't allowed to. Um, but no, that would have been the first school strike that had happened in a long time. But the thing that was cool, though, was not only... Was this a hip union doing media stuff, which is sort of like a you know wet dream for progressive <laughs> unionists at the time because it wasn't something that appeared to be happening much. Mm. But um, engaging the community who weren't directly involved—I mean, they were involved, but not that you know people who were going on strike weren't necessarily union members. But you know the key, key thing is any campaign you do, if you want to go broad, you've got to make social justice at the heart of it, not just some technical bargaining thing. Which is why it's important that we had a demand that was broader than just, you know, clause five point six. Yeah.
put a close sign up and we just came out here on strike. I don't know, but I've been tough. I'm here to support the McDonald's workers because we get low wages. One of the girls from KFC, she was like, she, she made it seem so real. So like, if she can do it, why can't we? I mean, we've got the union behind us, and they can't touch, uh, McDonald's can't touch us, so we're sweet. They've got our backs. It's good. I feel, this is my own analysis, that there are waves of activism that go around the world that wash up on our shores, mm. and that we ride those waves. And I think, you know, when you ride those waves, you attract... You know, there are people who keep surfing after the wave's gone down. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt this is one group that had sort of surfed the wave but kept on sort of paddling. And I think that the youth strike was another way to keep keep issues going. So I, we, and, and this is a key thing, right, because we proactively created this issue. It wasn't something that people were demanding, even though there was already an injustice. This wasn't a reactive fight. This was proactive. So we made our own waves. And so I think it's really important that, you know, if we paddle with uh, with other groups at the same time, we can, you know, ride that wave longer. So it was really important that we had them there. But um, like, we got smashed in the media because it was presented as a, as a riot and stuff. But it didn't actually matter. In some ways, the whole presentation of it being a riot actually worked in our favour because, remember, there were two decision makers here. There was restaurant brands, which was a lever around the employers, and then there's the government as a lever. In this case, actually, the riot, I think, gave us bargaining leverage because restaurant brands just wanted a deal because they wanted to control, they wanted this all over. They, their brand was getting smashed, you know, all through the media. Yeah, so so we were essentially running a public-facing campaign at the same time that we're doing an inward industrial campaign. What I understand now was quite unusual at the time, but I mean, that's really the heart of campaigning. you got to remember, I wasn't a union person, I wasn't lost in institutionalised mm. unions, and I don't think Unite was either because they wanted to do things differently. So even if it wasn't all perfect all the time, I'd rather have people with passion to do stuff who are willing to learn and make some mistakes than people feeling safe in their institution, you know. The owners of KFC, Pizza Hut and Starbucks buckled under union pressure and signed a new deal. Jeanette Thomas has the details. Hundreds of young people marched down Queen Street, protesting against low pay. Five days later, it looks like it was all worth it. We've been negotiating for five months after the student strike on Monday night. We went into negotiation for the first time the company had ever made an offer on youth rates. Restaurant brands employ 5,000 workers, 500 of whom are aged under 18. They've presented a proposal to union members that'll see youth staff now paid 90% of the adult minimum wage, up from the current 80%. There are a number of unions internationally that have figured out that you can run a union off the energy of young people who are overcommitted and mm. doing long hours. Mm. We weren't particularly systematic in the work we were doing, and some people were more interested in the strikes than the organising on the ground. And so there was a bit of tension internally because you know we built up the membership by doing one-on-one conversations, and I I felt that those were falling to the side. So we had to you know keep doing that, but also. You know, when you do small actions to make you look big, you've got to remember that internally we know they're small too. So, you know, and, and Matt was always, you know, you're there to do a deal. You know, at some stage you've got to do a deal. And that's the, that's the whole point of the peak. You know, mm. at some stage in your campaign, you will be at the peak of the leverage that you have with the decision maker. And it's really important you do a deal at the peak. If you slide down the other side, you may end up getting a worse deal than you could before. But, I mean, there were a bunch of other tactics that we did to build up momentum but um this is this is actually where we get to the point of i actually i actually left unite because i got i got frustrated because i felt that we hadn't reached our peak yet i was there when we were doing the restaurant brands deal but i mean literally the restaurant brands deal was done without consulting members which were really pretty i wasn't wasn't happy with at all and i think part of it was that uh, matt felt we were at the peak and the deal needed to be done otherwise everything would fall away so and and certainly i can understand that sometimes you know, losing the deal and being democratic may do more damage than doing a deal without being democratic. And like, mm. th- there must be some really rare situation where that happens. I don't personally feel that was the case then. Like, I, you know, I think having members on board is really important. But I mean, we were acting essentially as an advocacy organisation anyway. So you know, whilst we want to be member-led, the fact is we were essentially advocating through a small numbers of people taking strike action and clever media. You know, but the thing is, the media know where there's momentum and, not, and there isn't too. So, 
But maybe, but maybe it didn't matter. I mean, I mean, look, I thought it mattered. That's why I left. But I thought it was possible. But yeah, I don't know. Matt must have felt confident that that we had leverage, and if it wasn't done quickly, you know. But Matt felt that was the peak of our power and wanted mm. to do the deal. But you can have this internal stuff that is an issue and still have good outcome because it, it is really important that you have to meet the decision maker at some stage and get an outcome. Because the thing is, some people might focus on the political outcome but there's also the reality on the ground you because remember you're trying to build you're trying to get a concrete outcome you're trying to give members the opportunity to win it through their own actions and you're trying to alter the relations of power if you don't if you if you focus on a deal that's not achievable and you essentially get nowhere you may demobilize your troops and not be able to fight anymore but i mean afterwards i've you know obviously have different framework to talk about this now but it's the difference between a goal and a vision you know the visions the future you want to see the goal is the thing that you can achieve with the resources you've got you know that's why it's called a strategic goal you know it's we think with the resources we've got we can achieve this if you try to achieve a goal you haven't got the practical you know uh, sorry the, the ability to achieve then you're just going to be doing action that goes nowhere you know you're mm-hmm. just going to be sending me and no that's not going to it's just not going to last you might feel good because you've got this lefty position but actually our goal is to build power power is something you've got that's real it's not you know symbolic and this campaign did achieve its two key strategic goals it forced a national conversation on the minimum wage which several years and some more campaigning later ended up in an increase to $15 an hour but it also won immediate gains for the workers they were organizing this was Simon's main and key lesson from this campaign he told me over and over use a local dispute that organizes people around issues that affect them and use it as a wedge into a national issue. We did. We got the phasing out of youth rates. Mm-hmm. We, um, we got um, the minimum wage. We ended up getting $12 as an, a political outcome for all of the country. And you've got to remember, we didn't actually have the leverage internally to get $12 within the restaurant brands, but the strategy was you know, use them as leverage to get the political outcome so whilst we didn't achieve the $12 immediately through the collective agreement, we achieved it through the political win, which was achieved because of the, mm. the industrial agreement, if that makes sense. I still think this is one of the best strategies that, that we've ever had. Like it was, really? Yeah, it was really good. Wow. I, I feel like we don't talk about it enough, but like this is like, I've, I've held that. Like that to me is- This just, campaign. Yeah, totally. Like I felt like this was the vindication of the stuff that I'd been talking with people about an activist scene that people didn't get and I felt vindicated this happened but I tell you even to this day I feel that there are people who still don't get how we did it or, or we didn't even talk about it but it, mm. I think it was a really important one yeah. it was the largest increase in the minimum wage possibly bigger than even though we've had huge increases now getting rid of youth rates was like a five dollar increase for some people minimum wage has never increased by that that, mm. that again some influential union organizers nowadays insist that trade unions should build super majorities inside a workplace, meaning 90% or more of the workers in a company or work site that you're organizing in should be a paying union member and in support of strike action. In this case, though, that was never the goal because they simply didn't have the resources to organize all 5,000 workers. Instead, they focused on those most likely to act and most sympathetic to their campaign. The 2,000 people or so that they did manage to sign up was growth on a scale mostly unmatched by other unions at the time. And so, despite not having a supermajority, they were still able to win a new contract covering every single worker in the sector. So this is an important thing because I actually got a lot of shit from people after this, and particularly because I've spent a lot of my union work doing media-driven strategies. You use the media strategy when you're weak. Hmm. You know, you use smokes and mirrors because you're weak yeah but I, I i never believe that like you know using the media is um i mean you should always use the media because why not but relying on the media as a core part of your strategy i think you do that when you're weak when you've got industrial power like real leverage on the ground you don't need to use media in the same way but it's the context in which you're you're at that determines whether you should use it or not so you know at the time some people were saying oh if you want to go on strike you gotta go on strike for five days well that's not fucking realistic if you've never been on strike before (laughs) people who say to workers who don't have the capacity to strike for five days and tell them you should go on strike for five days really are saying you should do nothing but i think often what happens is the person's feeling macho but they full well know that the workers Mm -hmm. can't do it so they're they're looking macho but really what they're saying to people is don't do anything because that's not where the capacity is at so when you're weak make sure you look strong so i think using the media as a way to 
both attack the brand, which is a strategic thing, and to amplify your voice to you know create that narrative, particularly when you've got a political strategy. You know, we couldn't have made youth rates a political issue if we didn't have constant repeat stories repeated on an ongoing basis to create an ongoing conversation that forced politicians to take a position on it. You know, you polarize. Yeah, yeah. No, it was pretty amazing. And the the one on one conversation model that we cr- developed was used by unions focused on growth for many years after that. Really? Yeah. Not not necessarily in the same context, but like the same basic one on one conversation. Now, I would never have talked about that as a one on one conversation in the way that we talk about it now in politics and stuff. But that's what it was: just a basic conversation, engaging with people, connecting pe- with people around their personal issues, co- connecting it to a broader industrial political goal and then translating that into an ask to join the union you know i would never have used like a structured recruitment conversation i just talk like a normal person pitipi did the same thing we just you know connected with people where they're at i don't think we needed a super crazy strategy but i think the previous activists were going in thinking about it Mm. in a sort of activisty way that's just not really the approach that i don't think they knew anything about the union i mean rima she was a 50 60 year old oh, okay. um, pacific island woman i mean she's amazing you know she's like she rima a, the mum. yeah she was great but she was a volunteer too oh, yeah right. and people just loved her you know i don't Pitipi was um, marty he would have been in his maybe his 30s i've got one young girl at a pizza she's 15 six dollars 89 per hour and she organized a strike for herself she's signed up people to the union She's fantastic. CEO of Starbucks America earned US six million last year. Oh, I get seven thirteen. Before tax. You've got the people at the top who are earning so much and the people at the bottom who are earning so little and it's all controlled by the guys at the top. We are having a stop work meeting. We're not gonna take it anyway and we don't have to. And our manager told some people not to come and they just walked out anyway. There is a certain idea that people have got that if people see injustice, it will just organically create a dispute. If that was true, shit would have hit the fan ages ago. You know, It wasn't us coming along that created the conditions of people being exploited on youth rights. It already existed. Mm. So, you know, to get the best organic growth, you want to prepare the soil. So that that's sort of how I look at stuff now. And I, I purposely use this because it's often hippies and lefties that talk about you know things happening organically so i've sort of turned that on on them a little bit but um organizers organize organizers you know, like mm. the role of an organizer is, is to build confidence in people and a plan to work together to do stuff and you know someone has to step forward to do that at, at the basic level you know mm. um but if we talk about motivation you know i said before i think if people are involved in deciding stuff then they will feel more motivated be true but losing also is incredibly demotivating so there's there's a tension between having a plan that's actually going to win and having a plan where people feel that they've understood that they've won or lost you know the Mm. uh, i remember reading this one thing this some random thing but it was called the win 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 fail win fail win fail theory which is win to build confidence but then you've got to fail so people can sort of Mm. get you know grab the, those lessons and be, be motivated i don't they think that's ever happened that way but um i mean that was one of the the things that other unions criticized us for i think they took the criticisms too far because i sort of feel like they're saying you shouldn't be doing what you're doing but obviously we got a good outcome mm. but um you know what are the outcomes of organizing a concrete win giving people the opportunity to win through their own actions and altering the re- relations of power certainly what we did created the base for unite to exist on an ongoing basis Partly because, you know, financial numbers, partly confidence in the union. Yeah, so the union was out to exist because of that. So in a way, there was alter relations of power because there's a union that has the capacity to then go on to McDonald's and Burger King and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, certainly Unite employs now organisers who've come from the floor, which is, which is good. Hmm. And, you know, there were a number of people from that dispute that went on to do other stuff. The main reflection is we didn't do enough to build you know those those structures but maybe that's not possible um at that time with our experience and skills and resources and the precarious nature of yeah. the workforce i don't know but it's still important hmm. you know on a personal level then how did it feel to have a bunch of ideas about what could work trying them out seeing them work and watching as previously non-politicized people stood up went out on strike and forced a multinational company to give them fairer wages. Mm. I, I've actually tried writing about this before, like the whole dispute, and I, I always stop. 
but but one of the key things is this idea of the spark like this moment where um you go from being a participant to being like a activist and and so for me the original spark was being involved in anti-war stuff and wanting to do a particular tactic that everyone said wasn't going to work and i did it and i felt like it worked and so it wasn't just the opponent saying it wouldn't work it was actually people who should be our allies saying it shouldn't work mm. and then the sort of awakening of that worked and then sort of being politicized from it and i've talked to other people who've said the same thing that they it wasn't just an opponent that was the issue it was actually a supposed ally who's challenged what they're doing and you've gone and done it and it's worked anyway and i i felt like I didn't have the skills or capacity of, like, I don't know what, to convince people of the tactics and strategies that I thought would be successful, that I, I felt had been successful. I just didn't have the skills. I probably still don't have the skills now because I don't always seem to have been able to influence other organizations to pick up on some of these lessons. But supersize my pay was a confirmation of what I already felt was true from my experience of doing uh, activist stuff. I was just really disappointed at the time that no one appeared to be interested in picking up those lessons except for first union um which was lila hare who was also a friend of matt mccann's from the same political background from alliance she saw what we did and wanted to bring that work to the union that she just had just been elected to and and we, and we took those lessons across there and we applied them and were successful again the 2000s are often written off as a left-wing wasteland in contemporary analyses of the trajectory of neoliberalism bill clinton and tony blair's third ray triangulation an acceptance of the core premise of the neoliberal model was dominant, whilst Helen Clark, as New Zealand's Labour Prime Minister, was rapidly deserting some of the more radical positions she'd taken as a junior MP. The Supersize My Pay campaign then, using an exciting media-driven strategy, could have been seen as a sign of a resurgence in trade union organising. Well, that was certainly a narrative we exploited to get media attention. <laughs> that was like a conscious thing. But I mean, I, d I didn't know that because I wasn't really involved in unions before to know that they weren't doing that. But it was certainly a conscious thing that Matt and Mike had brought in. I, I already had an analysis around that I mentioned before around the waves of activism. So I wasn't that involved in the anti-globalization stuff. But that was the first stuff that I sort of was involved in that wasn't animal rights. And I saw that it was a wave and I saw that people were riding it. And then I saw the anti-war stuff and saw that we were writing it. And it was largely driven by events outside our control. But it, it sort of didn't matter to me because I already knew, had this that analysis around the waves mm. and that we need to create our own waves, not just ride those waves from internationally. Any campaigning can't just be reactive. You've mm. got to build your own campaigns, create your own points of engagement and, and build and win things on the ground. You can't just rely on the wave coming in, in and out, because a lot of those waves, you know, the decision makers are well beyond your resources to influence, you know, and if organising is using your resources to build the power you need against the decision makers. Why do you think people behave so tactically? Well, I mean, it seems to be so common and I, I've definitely experienced it myself. Because it's tactile, you can feel it in your fingers. You know, you, 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 you want to do something and a tactic is something concrete that you're doing. There's an immediate f feedback loop. I feel pissed off, I did a march, I was a part of it. It's a concrete thing. The problem is if, you, if you're tactically focused without a strategy, you can't actually achieve the outcomes you want or the outcomes you achieve are largely as a result of the symbolic nature of the actions that you've done. So half measures or, but, or, or even in the worst case, because actually in New Zealand it's relatively easy to influence the political decision-making through symbolic actions. What it does is it creates a culture of symbolic tactical actions where you don't have a culture of being strategic because you, if you can achieve things tactically, why think strategically? Mm. But that frustrated the hell out of me. I finished by asking Simon what he sees as some of the key strategic lessons from this campaign and his experience in political organising. The most important thing about Gans's definition of strategy is the first part of, of his definition Use the resources you've got to build the power you need, to force the decision maker, to give you what you want. Use the resources you've got, not what you think you've got, not what you'd like to have. What have you actually got? And, and I think that's the key thing is that when you're talking about the resources you've got, it sort of seems like you're saying don't think big. And I think the thing that you use to temper those who want to feel will look radical without getting a radical outcome, and to make sure that the tactics that you use are in line with the principles that we've got. You know, so we use direct action rather than, you know, letter writing to achieve that goal. We've just got to move beyond the identity of looking radical mm. to actually getting outcomes that actually matter. Because if you want to go beyond armchair activists or a small activist clique and actually engage with real people, you've got to achieve something concrete.
because the thing that mobilizes people is a strategy that can actually win you know and if if you've got a goal that's not based on the resources you've got then you're not gonna be able to win it and so you won't be able to motivate people well, you might you might connect with other people who are already radicalized but um the people who are already radicalized are a small group of people who've already prioritized the political issue or the identity of the issue which doesn't actually reflect the broader people you know and part of saying what are your resources is saying who are your people mm. so you know are your people just that small group of activists or is it the people that you need to build that power to shift the decision maker you know if rosa parks only had a ticket then you've got to reframe that ticket to become something more powerful than what it is it wasn't just a piece of paper it was actually an idea and it was a it was a tactic that was a part of a broader strategy and so you know we might not have much money and we may even not have that many people and we may not necessarily have many many ideas but your campaign goal has to be based on what your resources have that you've got you know that's really important because otherwise you're just dreaming you know and it's actually important to dream and win if you dream and don't have a plan to win that can demobilize people it can reinforce Mm. this idea that we actually have got no power to change things when actually it's just a fucking bus ticket you know it's just a piece of paper with some scribbles on it but you know the context in which it was used turned something that seemed impossible into something that's possible made it this far thank you so much for listening to the first episode on our series we've got some really amazing stories coming up next week for example how sex workers got their industry decriminalized in 2003 please share this episode with a friend you think might like it and then make them listen to it and also please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts it helps the show find new listeners and we really want to get these lessons out to everyone working towards a better future thanks to masarima clone records and Ethan Hunter for all the music we use in each episode.